This is exactly right. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. My favorite murder. That's Georgia Hardstark. Thanks. That's Karen Kilgara. You're welcome. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> and we're done. <laughs> easy. That's all it takes to podcast. Light lifting this week. Podcasts yeah. are easy. Ugh. People who complain about them. Do people complain <laughs> about podcasts? Just us. <laughs> you know, there's been a lot going on. Absolutely. And a lot, a lot. And that's the only explanation of all the things going on in the world Mm -hmm. that I would forget to bring up last week that the Sherry Papini disappearance and reemergence case has come back around. Do you know that that case happened in 2016? That was the year one of this podcast. And you fucking called it then too. Now, I and the rest of America called it along (laughs) with uh, People Magazine who brought, I mean, that's the article I kept seeing posted on social media. Yeah. But they finally found through DNA testing who the undetermined male DNA was on her sweatpants and in her underwear. I forgot that that was there. Okay. That was there. And it was an ex-boyfriend that She she... it is. Did you read that article? Yeah. She went and shacked up with an ex-boyfriend for how long? Like two weeks or something? Yeah, but like, it doesn't make sense. He said in the article that she claimed to him, sure, she alleges that she was being abused. Mm-hmm. And that's, but then the entire time she was there, she was planning this. She was not eating and hitting yeah. herself and doing stuff to look abused when she got back. Yeah. I think she just wanted to hang out with an ex for a little bit and chose a really bad way to do it. But like, and truly like for when you say for a little bit, it's like 29 hours. Like, it seems like. Was that it? It seems like she like the hookup part, (laughs) the fun part happened. And then she was immediately like going into false, racist, hostage accusation plan. Yeah. Yeah, that is that still boggles the mind. It's like, bonkers. It's bonkers. There's no I, did she, I think maybe she wanted to be famous in some fucking weird way. She, yeah. You know what I mean? Like which worked. Yeah. Let's and acknowledge, let's acknowledge that it, it worked. Sounds like her husband had no idea. And was like, yeah. obviously, he's not. A, well, I mean, not obviously, but he's not in the plan if he's like sending her off to the old 
fucking Steve's house or whatever who she used to date. No, and he was the one that was on like whatever right. the whatever the magazine show was where uh. he was the one telling that story and he was the worried like what a disaster plan. Yeah. What a stomach ache of a reminding me of my late teens, early twenties <laughs> type of plan. I'm gonna go. Then, I'm gonna do this, and it's gonna work. No questions asked. Goodbye. And maybe I'll seem kind of popular and get some attention, yeah. but also um, make incredibly racist allegations, right. which I think from the beginning we said yeah. were. It's like one was old and one was young and yeah. one had long hair and one had short hair and one was mean and one was nice <laughs> and no tied me to a pole <sighs> yeah well this, it'll be fun they're definitely gonna press charges against her right well that's what it seems like because that's what they it seems like that's what they were waiting to do they oh, just right. were waiting for some kind of evidence to yeah. come through that was pointing in some direction right. and then once they got that guy's name he was like sure I'll tell you all about it because <laughs> you can you imagine being that guy then then watching this whole thing yeah. explode in the media oh, man Whew. it like it makes me cringe because it's like did she really think no one was going to figure it the fuck out? She, oh, maybe she's one of those people who's like, everyone's, I'm smart and everyone's stupid. So no one yeah. will fucking under, like, think this. And I'm too pretty to be victim blamed and like, you know, just some fucking delusional de excuse for very, very bad illegal behavior. Yeah, just remember, if you're going to go try to put some kind of a national plan into place, <laughs> well, I think people now realize because it's. I mean, six years later, mm -hmm. where it's like, no, people will analyze your whole life. Yeah. They will absolutely boil that thing down yeah. and look into it further than you've ever wanted. And also because we live in a world now where you people can look into your life right. as far as they would like to through social media. Yeah. So <sighs> crazy. Well, that's a, uh, you know, hey, it's fun to close the loop every once in it a is, while. It is. It yeah. is. I love those. Uh, I love those full circle moments that because we've been doing this for six fucking years of our lives get to happen here. You've heard it here last. Here. Not live <laughs> on this not live podcast. Six Couple years later. After the fact that it came <laughs> out, you get to hear it here in our hot take. And when we talked about it originally, I remember feeling so I just wanted to know so bad at the yeah. time. And then, of course, which I don't know if we said or not, but of course, once you learn the real story, I bet you said this. Once you learn the real story, you're like, nah. OK, well, now I just don't care. That's just dumb. <laughs> this woman sucks. That's boring. Bye. <sighs> Bye. Well, unfortunately, I think there's kids involved, right? So like that's yeah. going to be a real whopper to bring into therapy. Right, oh, hopefully God. sooner than later for those kids. It's just pointless. It's like, oh, I hope you had fun for those first three days. And then you yeah. starved yourself and found chains to put around your <laughs> chains. If you want, uh, if you want attention, fucking do something good, <laughs> really good and get some people to like you. I don't know how to do it, obviously. So I can't I mean, give good advice, but or start a podcast. <laughs> Yeah, start a podcast for sure. But also, I think when you're pining for the like the old days and some exes, that's just a red flag to yourself. Right. Of like, there's something else I need yeah. that it that none of that has really anything to do with that. I'm just projecting. Yeah, I'm unhappy with this life. So I'm fantasizing about an old life. That isn't what I think it is. Yeah. Goodbye. Oh, goodbye. 
speaking of exes, uh, what are you watching? What are you up to? <laughs> speaking of exes. I don't know. So a friend of the family, Stephanie Beatriz. Oh, my God. Yes. Who is one of the stars of Encanto, yeah. which we, we watched over the holidays and is a wonderful musical, is now the host of a new podcast. Have you heard of it? No. Called Twin Flames. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. You have to listen to I can't believe it's real. It is so upsettingly and so like tell me, talk tell about me. cringe. I haven't listened yet. There are people who make up this concept that you have a twin flame. There's one person in the world for you. That's it. And when you find that person, oh. whoever it may be, is it a 22 year old man at your work? So be it. Or some <laughs> How lucky that... for you. It's so close. There we're in Scranton. <laughs> he's Scranton. right there. Just... And he's young. Yeah, he's right there. You don't have to go anywhere. Go anywhere. He's, he's not in uh, Egypt or something. <laughs> but once you find that person and you know, and you do some, I guess, the exercises or Magic take some classes. Uh -huh. um, then your whole thing is that you have to go get your twin flame. <laughs> Wait, so who, pick, who finds it out for you? Who picks it? Well, you, I think, arrive. I think this is, it started where basically is like, can you not get over the person that doesn't like you? It oh. is the is maybe the banner that okay. the unspoken, unwritten banner over the conference room that was the online class right. called Twin Flames. You have to listen to it. Okay. It's these two it's a couple. So they've found their twin flame and they're there to teach you how to find oh. and land yours. Let, any of those let us show you how fucking seminars or whatever the fuck is like just run the other way. They don't know how and they're not gonna teach you jack shit but how to fucking get rid of your money <laughs> real fast. Here's all I'll say is these people have no fear of uh, restraining orders. They think that a restraining <laughs> oh, order is no. a good sign. Oh, no. Oh, dude, this is okay. I uh, full credit to Jacob Tierney, my Canadian friend that no uh -huh. one thinks is real, but is <laughs> of Letterkenny fame, uh -huh. who is the one who was like, you have to drop everything and listen to this right <laughs> now because it's really you can't believe it's real and then you can't believe that people because people basically join a cult in quarantine like on zoom yeah so they start going to these classes and then there's a bunch of other people that are like i'm also in love with somebody who does not love me back and we're all together going to believe in ourselves and yeah. do what's right for us and they it's like a thing called claiming them. <laughs> so they literally go to the people like, I, and you have to say to the guy, I claim you. <laughs> no. I claim you. Yes. And they're doing all this super, what would ordinarily just be really embarrassing if you were like in junior high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But these are fully grown adults who are walking up to people who like they've hung out with a couple times with, you know, uh -huh. like from the near their grocery store, wherever. I mean, you, you have to yeah. listen to the podcast. I can't believe it. It can't. And then it gets cr crazy beyond like okay. beyond. And also Stephanie is such a good narrator host. Yeah. She's so, She's so good. Multi-talented. Yeah. I met her on a plane and she was the loveliest fucking person. Yeah. And she was at our, wasn't it our Vegas show? That's she right. She was there with yes. us. Yeah. That's such a red flag where it's, you get people at their most vulnerable. So you're in love with someone who doesn't love you back. So you're heartbroken. You're uh, you're probably feeling a little low about yourself, a little worthless, maybe. And like 
that's how that's the perfect time to get for someone manipulative to get you to listen and follow their command. Yeah. And not think it through. Well, also, it's people telling you exactly what you want to hear right. instead of like my mean older sister who'd be like, no joke, shut up about this guy. Where <laughs> it I'd doesn't be like, matter. Oh, sorry, you're right. Or like, yeah, yeah. he sounds like a dork or whatever. Like right. nobody that's going to help you out with the hard, cold truth of like this, like this is about something else. Yeah. Like you like this person, but you also don't know him. <sighs> so clearly again red flag you have to listen to it because okay. i'm just talking about the beginning oh it's God. called twin flames all right i'm in i'm in yeah are you watching severance on apple tv i have not i've heard a lot about it and people really like it but i haven't watched it it's good adam scott speaking of granton no he wasn't on the office you're thinking parks he was in pawnee that's right uh it's like this okay it's totally sci-fi but it's also like a dark i wouldn't say comedy but like a dark i don't know it's fucked up it's really good and he's great in it and uh he kind of looks it's he looks distractingly like tignataro in it which is my (laughs) only my only problem with it I'll send you the screen grabs. That they I look very someone. similar. Yeah. They are very, they could absolutely be siblings. Yeah. Yeah. That's hilarious. But it, other than that, it's really good. And like, it's got that sci-fi and like fucking Christopher Walken. And then uh, what's his name from John Totoro. John Totoro was in it. And like, they have a fucking like scene together. That's so good. Like just, it's really good. I'm not done with it yet, but I fucking Vince and I are really into it. I, um, People were talking about it on Twitter, and I, of course, love Adam Scott. Friend of the Karen. Friend of the Karen. His And also his aunt has been a teacher with my sister for, like, years and Aww. years. Yeah. So we're we're basically cousins. Um, <laughs> not, not in the least. John Turturro's great. Fucking Patricia Arquette is, like, it's just good. It's just creepy and good and sad. And, and it's a Ben Stiller joint? Yeah. Weird, right? Yeah. I mean, no, he's a good director. I mean, yeah, I just wondered, like, why isn't he in it? But it's great. Well, and also it seems like a true departure from his usual, like, either comedy or, you know what I mean? Like, that's, it's a different thing. So, yeah, he's branching out. He couldn't be in it because he had to concentrate. Yeah. We're so proud of him. We don't. We're so proud of him. (laughs) Now, (laughs) he's grown up so much. Right before our eyes. Let's see. Do we just have two wrecks? We can do that. We don't have to like go yeah, forever. We don't. But I see something behind you that I just remembered. We have to talk about. Oh, we don't that's have to. Right. We don't have to do it this week. Well, I can't have just an anonymous box in my house that I don't know what's inside that of it. That you're not allowed to open that says four Karen <laughs> on it. It's not really, but it's also <laughs> surgical masks. So it's, it's a little it. yeah. a little daunting. Look, I just want to explain to you that in the vein of the Thanksgiving flavored candy corns that we ate on oh, yeah. air. Yeah. The uh, podcast first, eating on the eating on air. I found these. And yeah. Now or another time, whenever we want to do it, we need to try Grant Rock's late night taco truck jelly beans. We got to do it now. Okay. We got to do it Let me tell you what flavors there are. I'm going to read them to you. Margarita, churro, horchata. Okay. We're off to a good start. Yeah. Then we go to salsa, guacamole, and beef taco. (laughs) These people... 
The people at Brock's clearly had some youngsters take over. Uh-huh. I don't know if the grandchildren have come in. <laughs> Whatever they're doing, they're you know doing I, it right. You know what I think? Take a handful and then I'll tell us what, what. I think we should eat the guacamole, salsa, and beef taco at once. I, that sounds like torture. Yep. But, okay. You know, so the, you mean like so it's like eating a taco? Yeah, you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Hold on. Let me separate it. It looks like brown. Brown. There's a brown is churro. And a brown. So the brown one that looks like a root beer jelly belly is is churro. Okay. So and then and the horchata. yellow. What's there's no yellow. <laughs> What's yellow? <laughs> Wait a second. I don't know. Are there other flavors as well? No, I'm so. I'm gonna roll the dice and eat a yellow. All right, I'll eat a yellow too. Oh, oh no, beef taco. (laughs) Oh no. Oh no. Oh no, beef taco jelly bean. Let's do a green guacamole. I don't mind that one. No, because avocado can be sweet. I don't personally care for avocado myself, but I'm gonna try what I think is salsa. Okay, me too. Oh, oh, it is. Oh, oh. That's very accurate. That is so salsa-y. But it's whatever Gen Z, as you said, Brock's, Brock's grandchildren are they're doing good it. at the flavors. I actually kind of like the salsa. The salsa is more, I would say, along the lines of paste picante sauce as opposed to like mm-hmm. a fire roasted salsa. It's a real classic grocery store salsa. I get taste. a little, yeah, and I get a little Bloody Mary in there too. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yep. a, like a sweet tomato Okay, now we get to eat the good ones. Thank God. that. Although I have to say, compared to Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. those three were not that bad. Horchata, baby. Okay. Fuck, horchata jelly bean is the best fucking thing I've ever had. Oh, margarita's helping me. <laughs> it always does. And then churro. Oh, yeah. Everyone loves a churro. Horchata is a great palate cleanser mm-hmm. to get into that churro. Brox, we just need a whole thing of horchata jelly beans, please. All right. Well, we had taco truck jelly beans on a true crime podcast. I got to say though, I feel like Brock's maybe took some notes from the public mm-hmm. and made these jelly beanier. So even if you're having like a salsa taste, mm-hmm. there's still a sweetness yeah. where you can enjoy it. It doesn't feel as much like a prank as right. like Thanksgiving dinner did. Right. Which I loved. I love that. I love that. The only prank one was the beef taco, which wasn't good. <laughs> which, Shockingly. Yeah. I think we would all know that. I love that. A lot of people uh, posted this on Twitter to me oh. saying, did you know? Did you know? All right. Well, that's what I was hoping was in that mask box. You were. <laughs> I was hoping. But and then I was like, keep your expectations, you know, what? in check in case you're just like, hey, here's some leftover masks. <laughs> <laughs> don't, Dude, look you in, don't look in it until i tell you don't look but here's some old masks <laughs> they're used <laughs> uh cookie licked each and every one of them enjoy <laughs> yeah i say brock's welcome to the 2020s yeah and they sent by the way i think we said that they when we did the brock's thanksgiving candy corn this is not an ad in any way for them not but the least. they sent us a huge box of candy around halloween yes. which was like awesome and they're friendly and nice and they're <laughs> friendly don't worry they're friendly you can they approach don't buy them <laughs> i still have harvest mix in the back of my like doodads drawer that it's in the kitchen where it'll be like soy packets yeah. and then like an old twix and like just Fortune random cookie. stuff yeah yes exactly and there's a bunch of like candy corn 
harvest mix that just the pumpkins like we got all of it so good they spoiled us they did thanks brox hey brox we love to be in partnership with you brox i just belched (laughs) oh you know what episode that is is the one you covered the brox heiress murder (gasps) oh that's right yeah that's god if we could get it together to really align all of our sponsorships and integrations could you imagine how slick this fucking podcast would be yeah the hair dye murder brought to you by madison reed or whatever (laughs) (laughs) is there a hair dye murder (laughs) there's gotta be yeah there's gotta be a mid-century modern scandinavian design murder (laughs) that's cut out the middleman yeah literally dun 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 yeah that's exactly when we will cancel this podcast right <laughs> right when we get good at stuff like that let us go we don't who need cares to be, when we're professional at this that takes all the joy out of it yeah no thanks we're not here for a job guys we're not we're and we're certainly not here to impress we i think <laughs> we've made that abundantly clear <sighs> should we do some exactly right highlights please yes Guys, over on the Exactly Right Media Network, which is our podcast network, mm-hmm. where all our friends and acquaintances have podcasts. <laughs> or anyone we've ever liked <laughs> just slightly. Just whoever. But people who we like a lot. Yeah. On Bananas This Week, Kara Clank and Lisa Traeger of That's Messed Up and SVU podcast will be the guests. So Kurt and Scotty, Kara and Lisa, it's a party over on Bananas. Crossover! It's- they're doing it that's our crossover song yeah crossover and iconic actress samantha mathis who's in pump up the volume and american psycho is on that's messed up and svu podcast to discuss season five episode nine a classic (laughs) what if we just kept talking about that's messed up just over and over that's right and lisa traeger is on (laughs) kara clink's other podcast (laughs) (laughs) i love both of those women i do too Oh, also on this podcast, we'll kill you this week. Aaron and Aaron discuss the ins and outs. This is how it's phrased on this. I think this is Hannah Crichton being funny. Yeah. The ins and outs of lightning strikes. What a cool topic. Like it fits yes. in there. It fits in their little, their, their world, but it's so like unexpected and cool. I know it's because it will kill you. It yeah. can kill you. It has it killed. Ha- it's killed for sure. And why not talk it through? Because also I think storm season is, yeah. is coming around. So get aware. Everyone's scared of getting struck by lightning, right? Yeah. They should I think be. So. They will be after they hear this podcast will kill you. Okay. Um, the MFM store is restocked with We're All Indoor Cats Now merch. That was all previously um, out of stock, but it's now in 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 yes the uh, indoor cat art is by at mighty pigeon underscore art on instagram she's so talented georgia have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant like perfectly scrambled eggs oh my god yes karen and then all i want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day well you probably could as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient Made In Cookware. Made In was created to bring restaurant-quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made In. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of Made In products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's 
that's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. Why do I always remember lyrics to songs, Karen, that I haven't heard for years, but I always forget my email passwords? I know, right? It's like our brains only want us to retain useless information, but with 1Password, that problem solved. 1Password is an award-winning password manager that's trusted by families and large-scale companies alike. If you're tired of being the person that everyone texts for a streaming login, hand that honor to 1Password. They let you share logins with people and with groups. With 1Password, you can securely switch between any device type or operating system. That means if you're a family or business that uses both Mac and PC, you won't have trouble sharing your private data. Don't let the name fool you. 1Password does more than just store passwords. It can autofill usernames, payment details, and personal information. And they notify you about potential data breaches. For business operations, 1Password has a dedicated support team that will integrate its security tools into your existing workflow. 1Password saves everyone time. And we all know that time saved equals money saved. Your accounting department will thank you. Don't just listen to us. 1Password was named Wirecutter's best password manager. And companies like Salesforce and IBM trust 1Password to secure their most sensitive information. So you can too. Right now, our listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash MFM. That's two free weeks at one, as in the number one, password.com slash MFM. Onepassword.com slash MFM. Goodbye. All right. Well, we did it at the top and we're going to do it at the bottom now. Here we go. Oh, yeah. So is this, are we a book ending podcast now? That's right. We're like a sinkhole. It starts up here and then collapses beneath our weight. Then we'll see you down underneath the pipes, down into the That's hidden right. spring underneath your street. We might take a car or two with us. You just never know. You don't know. This week, I am going to start, and my story is the Cokeville Elementary School bombing. Wow. I don't know if you know anything about this. Happened in Cokeville, Wyoming <gasps> in 1986. No. It's an unbelievable, horrifying, and amazing story. And the first time I ever heard of it, it was because I saw a great episode of I Survived <gasps> with an adult man who tells the story because he was like eight years old Whoa. and he survived this. And it is kind of mind blowing. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I don't know this one. The sources for this story are the website Wyoming History, which is yohistory.org. There was a, several articles there, and then there's the Unsolved Mysteries wiki. There's a New York Times article by Ivor Peterson, and there is an article by Ryan Morganeg from the Desiree News. Okay, it starts in Cokeville, Wyoming on Friday, May 16th, 1986. Mm -hmm. So Cokeville is a very small, quiet ranching town in Lincoln County, Wyoming, there's about 550 people that live in Cokeville wow. and just over a hundred children attend the town's elementary school. So essentially what I'm explaining to you is this is a tiny town. Okay. So 
the school secretary is named Christine Cook. Everyone calls her Tina. And she's working in the office at Cokeville Elementary. And just after 12 noon on Friday, May 16th, the kids have just eaten lunch. And she sees a couple walking toward the school and coming inside the school. This is David and Doris Young. David's 43. Doris is 47. And she sees that they're pushing a shopping cart. She can't see what's inside. And she's just confused that this middle-aged couple is coming into the school like that. But of course, it's the mid-80s. So you could go to schools if you wanted to. You could kind of just do whatever you wanted. Yeah. So they walk up to the counter and lean against it and just stare at her and they don't say anything. So she gets up and says, may I help you? After a beat, David says, yes, Mrs. Cook, this is a revolution and I'm taking your school hostage. Don't set off any alarms or make any calls or the children will all die. Oh, my God. So then he basically does a reveal of what's in the shopping cart, and it's a makeshift bomb. So essentially, this bomb is composed of two gas-filled containers stacked on top of each other, and then a bunch of rifles. So he basically shows that the detonator is rigged with a string tied to his wrist, and then it connects to a clothespin on a blasting cap that's affixed to the top of a gallon milk jug that's filled with gasoline. Mm. The bottom container holds two tuna cans filled with flour and aluminum powder that are there to create a large flash explosion. And each of those cans also has a blasting cap. There are chain links, gunpowder, and boxes of ammunition all positioned around the bomb inside the cart to act as shrapnel for when the bomb goes off. And then David explains that if he connects the two metal pieces on either side of the clothespin that's tied to his wrist, all three blasting caps will go off and the whole bomb will explode. Mm. So it's very thrown together yeah and which i'm sure made it even scarier like because it probably looks crazy yeah so david and doris then pull a gun on tina and tell her to unplug the office phone they then lead her at gunpoint through the school's halls and as they do they round up any teachers or students that they find along the way and have them come with them And they choose a first grade classroom and start directing the hostages inside. David positions himself and the bomb filled shopping cart in the center of the room while Doris goes um, to the other classrooms and rounds up anyone else that's still in the classroom. Mm. So in that I survived, the boy that tells the story says that when Doris came into the classroom He was just a kid. So it's an adult coming in and saying there's an assembly in the first grade classroom and everyone has to come. Mm -hmm. And the teacher's confused, but she goes out to see what's going on. And then she basically is like, come on, children, we have to go. Yeah. So they don't really suspect anything until they get into the classroom. So this normally the maximum capacity of the first grade classroom is 30. Now there's 154 Children and teachers and um, school staff total crowded inside and everyone is staring at the strange man with the guns and the shopping cart full of explosives. Wow. So we'll talk a little bit about David and Doris Young. David Young starts life as a very bright child, but he has a hard time communicating. He has a hard time making friends. He grows up in Grinnell, Iowa, as a lonely straight-A student, and he goes on to study criminal justice hmm. at what I believe is pronounced Chadron State College in Nebraska, but 
I'm probably wrong. Mm -hmm. And he earns a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. Somewhere along the way, he fathers a daughter, but he doesn't stay in her life and he doesn't um, marry the mother. He does marry an unnamed woman who he has a second daughter with later on, and they name their daughter Princess. And David has partial and then full custody of her Mm -hmm. princess. So in the 70s, David moves to Cokeville, Wyoming, and gets a job as the town marshal. He's the only police officer in the town at the time, which is around 1975 or 76. Mm -hmm. But he gets fired just six months after he's hired for misconduct and for incompetence. Those are the only explanations that they don't it doesn't go into detail of (laughs) what exactly yeah why oh no so it's during this time he meets doris waters who's a waitress and a singer who works at one of cokeville's local bars doris has a daughter of her own named bernie and her that daughter is from a previous marriage so david and doris they get married pretty quickly after they meet each other Mm -hmm. they move to a mobile home in tucson arizona with their two daughters So in Tucson, David falls deeper into isolation and potentially delusion. He takes a strong interest in philosophy. He starts writing a manifesto of his own that he calls zero equals infinity. Mm. Some of his influences include the novel Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which piques his interest in reincarnation, as well as much darker material like propaganda from white supremacist groups. So the hate groups give him the idea of a quote-unquote brave new world, or he refers to it as BNW in his um, manifesto. He believes that there is an ideal world that can be achieved through ethnic cleansing. Boring. I it's mean, been done and fucking taken down been, before. Dude. It's been done. Move. It's been done, and it's been proven by the people who believe in it. Yeah. That it just simply ain't it. Can we move on? Fucking racist piece of shit. Can we? Can we evolve? Will yeah. we ever evolve as a people? That ain't it. If you need, <laughs> if you need it to be everybody else, yeah. That's that's when you must yeah. turn to yourselves and say, "What am I doing?" If you can fucking pinpoint the problem as a certain people, you gotta fucking turn that pointing finger <laughs> back up. You're up your fucking into your eye. Stupid idiot. You already got the three. You've got the three pointing back. <laughs> You're pointing out here. Mm. Three pointing back with a fourth oh, if you can turn your thumb around. I get around. it. Pointing out there. You've okay. never heard that You're, one. I'm trying it. It looks silly. Let's move, on. <sighs> Let's move on. Let's move on. Hopefully that did it. Hopefully that cured yeah. that delusion. <laughs> gotta hope. That people have. Okay. So David, who never really wanted to work. Hmm. Oh. He relies on Doris's house cleaning and waitressing to support the family. He tries to come up with get-rich-quick schemes, but none of those work out. This is a, like so much like the hostage, the airplane hostage story that I told last totally, week. Totally, totally. Same personality type. His idea, his first idea, was to take a jetliner and hold that hostage for ransom, mm. but he he couldn't make that happen. In the 80s, he concocts a plan that he calls the biggie. He thinks this is his best plan yet. He refuses to discuss any of the details until the day of its execution, which is Friday, May 16th, 1986. Mm. And not even his two friends, Gerald Depp and Doyle Mendenhall, who he's roped into helping and investing in this plan, he doesn't even tell them what the plan actually is. Mm. They just believe in him. They think David is really smart. 
they're mesmerized by his rantings and his belief systems. And he's, uh, David has somehow convinced them that he has come up with a new energy that will revolutionize humanity's existence. I'm sure he had that all well thought out and it was clear and concise. Yep. He's and... smoking with his red string. Yeah. So when David tells them he's got a master plan and that he needs their help, uh, Gerald and Doyle are all in, both physically and financially. They want to help him do it and they want to help him pay for it. Great. Guys. Great. Guys. Have you ever heard of air hockey? It's down at the bar. It's really <laughs> loud. It's really fun. Invest in that. Something. Invest your Bitcoin in air hockey. <laughs> okay. So two days before the takeover, Wednesday, May 14th, 1986, David and Doris drive from Tucson to Cokeville in separate cars, bringing the now 19-year-old princess, their daughter, mm -hmm. along. They all meet up at a friend's house where they stay for the next two days, waiting for Gerald and Doyle to join them. On the day of the attack, Friday, May 16th, David, Doris, Gerald, Doyle, and Princess all pile into David's van and they drive to Cokeville Elementary School. Inside the van, David finally reveals the biggie, his full plan. They're going to enter the school armed with guns and David's makeshift bomb. They're going to hold all of the kids and teachers hostage, and they're going to demand $2 million for each hostage, which will eventually amount to $308 million. But once the demands are met, David doesn't plan to run off with the money. He wants to detonate the bomb anyway. And that way, the group and the hostages and the money will all be transported via reincarnation to the brave new world, an idealized white supremacist world where David will be God. <sighs> so imagine someone's telling you this is the plan for the first time right outside the school. Yeah. And then he's huh. like, now look at the shopping cart. So, huh. uh, And then slowly back, back step, back step. Yep. I don't They're know, just I don't like, know. we should have known because of this van. <laughs> So Gerald and Doyle, as delusional as they might be about how brilliant David is, yeah. they, they know this is not a good idea. So the guys say they refuse to participate. They just immediately are like, absolutely not. Right. David becomes enraged. He holds them captive inside the van at gunpoint. He wants to make sure they don't rat him out. So he instructs Doris and Princess to handcuff Gerald and Doyle inside the van so they can't get away. Mm. So once they're restrained, David and Doris start unloading the guns and the bomb. But Princess starts sobbing. And she's she thought they were going to rob a bank, not take children hostage and not blow children up. Yeah. So she stops helping. She basically just is like not into it. She doesn't want to do it. David gets mad at his daughter, but he doesn't restrain her. Instead, he throws the keys to the van at her and says, if you don't want to go with me, that's fine. You're no daughter of mine. And she was probably like, phew. <laughs> So then David and Doris are off into the school. So that's basically what was happening like five minutes before Tina at the, the secretary at yeah. the front desk was like, who are these two? Like, that's oh, what was going on outside. Man. So the good news is that Princess takes the keys, speeds off to City Hall with Gerald and Doyle and reports her father and stepmother oh. for what they're about to do to the authorities. Good for her. She goes right there. Yeah. Imagine how horrifying that is oh, where it's God. just like children. 
Yeah, no. So back inside the school, all the hostages are gathered inside the classroom. And around 1.30 p.m., David addresses the group and he says, this is a revolution and you're being held hostage, but we don't want to hurt you, children. We will watch you. We don't want you to run. We don't want you to try and do anything. We want you to stay away from the cart, stay away from the guns. But if you do try to run, we will shoot you in the legs. We don't want to kill you, but we will shoot you in the legs so that you don't run. As far as you adults go, we'll shoot you and kill you. We don't care. We have no use for you and we can kill you. Then he starts handing out copies of his manifesto, zero equals infinity, um, and tells everyone to read it. He also says that he sent a copy of it to the president of his alma mater, Shadron State College, to several media outlets and to President Ronald Reagan. Mm. Boo! (laughs) David's hope is that he can get the word out to Reagan so that the federal government pays the ransom fee. But if not, he figures because Cokeville... So this was the thinking of why he went back to Cokeville, which I'm sure underneath it all was sour grapes from basically being like the sheriff for six months and then people right. going, get the hell out of here. Right. He says he figures because it's a predominantly Mormon community and that the Mormon church has a lot of money. The Mormon church will step in. If president Reagan doesn't pay the mm. ransom, the Mormon church will. So of course, when this group of children hear this man say this, they start to panic. Many start sobbing. Many start saying they want to go home. Mm-hmm. People are already getting headaches because there's gas in these gallon milk containers. Some start throwing up because of the fumes. Mm. So David gives permission for the teachers to crack the windows to air out the fumes. And Doris tries to calm the kids by telling them that they need to think of this as an adventure movie. But that doesn't help because apparently she was kind of scary looking. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So then the teachers step in and they know that they have to, first of all, they have to keep these kids safe. They have to keep the kids calm and they have to keep the kids away from that fucking shopping cart in the middle of the room. Uh Because if a kid walks by and bumps it accidentally, it could go off. So the teachers immediately, they make a big rectangle around the area that David's in, in the center of the room. And they Uh call that the magic box. And they say, you can't go anywhere near the magic box. And you Mm -hmm. certainly can't step inside the magic box. So we're all going to, we're going to line up around the, you know, the outside of the classroom and we're staying away from the magic box. They start doing a really good job of keeping the kids calm and distracting them because they're little kids, you know, reading them stories. One of the teachers tries to say, oh, wait, it's so-and-so's birthday. We didn't sing them happy birthday. But of course, that's the most nauseating idea. Like no one wants to sing happy birthday. No, no, no one's going to fall for that. Meanwhile, police and parents are gathering outside the school and they're trying to figure out how to defuse this situation. But they know there's they can't make any sudden moves. There's nothing they can really do. They just basically have to sit there and wait to see Mm -hmm. what the demands are, like what the hell is going on. So here's what's funny. The one person that they missed in the school when they were rounding everybody up was the principal. So the principal must have been in his office with the door closed or something. So he basically comes out, is looking around, sees no one anywhere and finds his entire school being held hostage in the first grade classroom. So when he opens the door, David basically says, "Okay, you go back, you go to your office, call President Reagan and the FBI and let them know uh, this is a hostage situation. I want two million dollars 
per hostage. And the principal's like, I will go do that right away. But of course, he runs and calls the local police, mm-hmm. lets them know what's going on, what the demands are. He relays as much information about what's going on as he can. So meanwhile, David's growing angsty. They've been in this room for like an hour and a half. And suddenly the school bell rings at three o'clock, signaling the end of the day. So a bunch of the littler kids get excited because they think they get to leave. They think, oh, well, that's right. We all we get to leave. This is that's the official thing. So when David basically says they're not going anywhere, they all start crying again. Like Mm. that part starts all over again, of course. Secretary Tina Cook watches as David is pacing around. He's wondering aloud when his money's going to get there. And she also notices that Doris is trying to tend to the children, trying to calm them down. And that's when she realizes that, like, David might be the evil one because she's she would later describe him as being like empty in the eyes. But that she that she was even more repelled by Doris because she was actually like trying to be nice to the kids, which she was just like, that's just so creepy. Totally. So one of the third grade teachers who is named Pat leans over to Tina and asks her if she thinks that this is if this is real or if this is a hoax. Like, it's so strange, like what's going on. And Tina says to Pat, look into his eyes. You'll know this thing is very real. So then just before four o'clock, David decides he needs to go use the bathroom, which is basically there's a door that's accessible um, inside this classroom. Mm -hmm. So he turns and he ties the bomb detonator to Doris's wrist to put her in charge while he's gone. Mm-hmm. As Tina later remembers it, from the moment David goes into the bathroom, this is a quote, it just seemed like there was all of a sudden just a little bit of calm peacefulness. The kids got quieter. They seemed to calm down. There was just a feeling in the room like things had changed. It was almost like the evil walked out of the room. Before I'd been thinking, I'm never going to get a chance to say goodbye to my husband and my children because I knew we'd never walk out of that room. Mm -hmm. He told us we wouldn't and I believed him. And all of a sudden, I almost had this feeling of hope. I don't know how to describe it beyond that. But soon that would disappear Because just after four o'clock, while David's still in the bathroom, Tina hears Doris say, it's getting too noisy in here. It's just getting too noisy. And then she complains about having a headache. She reaches her hand up to wipe the sweat from her forehead. And when she does, it's the hand with the wrist tied to the clothespin detonator. The wooden piece is pulled from between the two metal conductors and the bomb goes off. (gasps) No, I was. Yes. Oh, my God. I was thinking someone was going to stop her before. Oh, my God. It explodes inside this classroom filled with children and teachers. And the boy in the I Survived episode is just like all of a sudden the room was on fire. Oh, my God. So these teachers who had been kind of like, you know, obviously watching everything, communicating, they know that these two people have been like on the edge this entire time. Yeah. So they just start picking up kids and throwing them out the window because it's a first it's a one story classroom. So it's, you know, four feet out. They just start picking them up and throwing them out over and over. Some kids actually run because they know there's several doors to the hallways to like there's exits. Uh And then there's also just the little kids are just going out the window like handfuls of them. And there's teachers just like standing there. There was smoke everywhere. There was fire. 
But these teachers basically almost like unspoken had this thing going and some grabbed a bunch of kids and like ran to an exit with them. It was total mayhem. I mean, a bomb went off inside the room. So David comes flying out of the bathroom at the sound of the explosion. He finds Doris alive, but covered in black soot and severely burned. Mm -hmm. And he walks up, pulls out a gun and shoots (gasps) her in the head. Holy shit. Yep. So he then turns and sees the teacher throwing the kids out the windows and he, he realizes everything's out of control and his whole plan is lost. And he just shoots a teacher, a man named John Miller, who was the music teacher. He just shoots him in the back and John Miller, it slows him down. It does not kill him. And he keeps, he keeps helping the kids. Oh my God. And then when David sees that he can't stop it and that everyone's escaping and that this whole thing is over, he brings the gun to his own head and shoots himself. So now with both perpetrators dead, the hostages can safely flee the burning building. So there's first responders on site already waiting to treat these injuries. There's triages Mm -hmm. set up in the surrounding areas. There's hospitals across Wyoming, Utah, and Idaho waiting to take patients from the blast. But here's what's you won't believe. Oh, no, no, no. What? All 79 hostages, which were mostly children, are treated for severe burns and smoke inhalation, but every single one of them, including John Miller, who was shot in the back, survived. Oh, my God. Every single one of them survived. This is a stressful story. It's a stressful miracle. Oh, my God. So it's it's like an impossible yeah. to imagine and think like yeah. that there wouldn't be but it was because it was so it was a lot of reasons first of all obviously the magic box truly was magic yeah. and it, it it held in all of that horror and that evil but also of course david shoddy handiwork building that bomb so basically yeah. the milk jug that had the gasoline in it had a leak so there was gas dripping down into those tuna cans which Instead of that powder going off when the bomb went off, it was just a muddy paste at that point. So it was flammable, but it didn't make the ammunition or any of that other stuff explode like it was supposed to. Yeah. Also, the wires leading to the tuna cans blasting caps had been cut. (gasps) They don't know who cut those wires. They don't know how that happened. It remains a mystery to this day. Wow. Ooh, I mean, it had to be one of them, right? Or one of the dissenters that didn't want to go in with them i mean i like to think it was princess just because i love her name so much and i love uh, i love the turn she made but i think it would be i don't know if there was time for them to be able to dismantle that bomb or even make that move who knows knows? so Along with the faulty bomb structure, the teachers who opened the windows for relief from the gas fumes unwittingly helped diminish the bomb's effect because they created enough ventilation to reduce the power of that blast. In the days after the bombing, news coverage recounted the events with the appropriate horror, of course, but when when newscasters spoke to the survivors, they quickly turned the narrative on its head and told their stories as stories of hope, faith, and perseverance. Mm. Because so many residents of Cokeville were religious people, many survivors preferred to look at things through the lens of their faith, thanking God for helping them live through what should have been a death sentence. Mm. 
Some remember seeing angels who helped guide them out of the burning classroom. Lots of kids. Okay, so. Really? Uh huh. There's a student survivor who is named Jenny. She was seven years old at the time of the bombing. And she'd later say, quote, many kids testified of their ancestors running with them, leading them out of the school or helping them hide in a closet. Oh, my God. End quote. She says, after the bomb went off, I thought one of the teachers at the school was helping me. I didn't recognize her, but she led me out by the hand and told me not to go back. And it wasn't until a few years later, um, when Jenny was in the fifth grade, that she recognized this quote unquote teacher from a family photo album. It was her aunt who had died several years before the bombing. Oh my God, I'm going to cry. Yeah. Um, another boy recalls seeing a woman in white in the classroom who, who, quote, said the bomb was going to go off. If I stood by the window, everything would be OK. <laughs> and then he would later identify this woman to be his late grandmother. Damn. School secretary, Tina Cook, she later says, quote, I know the children say they saw angels. Do I believe it? Yes, I do. I didn't see any angels, but I felt the peace and the calm. And I felt the difference in the room after David left. I felt the change, but it was nothing I could physically see or touch. There was just absolutely a difference. So with the help of local doctors, parents, and their faith, Cokeville rebuilds the damages to its elementary school and the kids and the teachers return to normal. Kids who suffered burns and other injuries show up to school in their bandages, and many of them seek the help of therapists to cope with the trauma. But by banding together as a community, Cokeville Elementary School's story lives on as one of hope instead of one of tragedy. The story of the hostage takeover and the bombing is documented in a book entitled The Cokeville Miracle, When Angels Intervene, written by Hart and Judine Wixom. There's also an Unsolved Mysteries and Unexplained Mysteries. And of course, a really good episode of I Survived with adults who were children in that classroom in 1986. And that is the miraculous story of the Cokeville school bombing. Holy shit. How have I never (laughs) fucking heard of that? Right? Right? That is wild. It's beyond. It's so awful. And Ah. so you absolutely have to look up that episode of I Survived. Because the people and there's employees, there's teachers and people that talk about it. And it's just the most unbelievable for little kids, the most unbelievable firsthand experience. Like what they went through and how they got through it. And it's just like, it's mind blowing. Wow. That is wild. Totally bonkers. Wow. Good job. Thank you. Yeah. There's something about the sound of an old timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. 
Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. All right. So I'm not going to give you too much information about this story, but today I'm going to talk about the abduction of Carrie Swenson, a world-class biathlete. Hmm. Uh, my information from today's episode, a heavily used Sports Illustrated article by Robert F. Jones, two cinemaholic articles written by Kriti Marotra, a Daily Beast article by Tarpley Hit, a Los Angeles Times article by Anna Depenga, a Bozeman Daily Chronicle article by Amanda Ricker, a KBZT staff article, and an AP article written by Marsha Dunn. So on July 15th, 1984... 23-year-old Carrie Swenson is working a summer job as a waitress at the Lone Mountain Guest Ranch in Big Sky, which is in southwest Montana. So obviously gorgeous. It's the gateway to Yellowstone, lots of nature. Um, Big Sky is this beautiful outdoorsy place. Tourists come to have these outdoorsy adventures It experiences like skiing, whitewater rafting, hiking, that kind of thing that people who are not like me go <laughs> horse camp Hor- i'm sure there's horse camp ranches there's horse camp <laughs> ranches horse camp all yep. of the things so um getting off work that day after lunch and being a seasoned biathlete carrie uses her afternoon to go on a six mile run on oh. jack creek road i know like you and i do yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> sometimes after I work, I just like to go for a, nice <laughs> for a run. Six miles, like both ways or like three, I three think and three. Three and three, but it's like through the wilderness. So I'm sure there's a fucking incline. There's hill. You know, a, there's hills. An element of incline. <laughs> it's not flat. No. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So it's, oh, it's a logging road. So Carrie's boss, Bob Shap, had seen a grizzly bear on that road the day before. But instead of deterring her, Carrie, who I right off the bat, she's a total badass. She makes this adventurous decision to head in that direction because she's like, oh, I want to see a grizzly bear in person. Carrie, you why in person? You can see it on any National Geographic. They have their own channel now. Yeah, it's yeah. a moving magazine. You can <laughs> David Attenborough, I'm sure, has narrated one million yeah. documentaries. You nope. don't need to see them in person. She's like, I run during my lunch break uphill and I'm a biathlete and I want to meet a grizzly bear and shake hands. <laughs> and I want to live the revenant. <laughs> And that's my prerogative. I'm 23. Guess what? I get to lift. That's her girl bossing around Montana. That's the definition of a Montana girl boss. It's like, I will go and let the let the grizzly bear know that I'm here. Yeah. High five a grizzly bear. Check it off my bucket list. Check. 
great. All right, let me tell you a little bit about our protagonist, Carrie Swenson. Born in 1961 in Pennsylvania, when she's nine years old, the Swenson family moves to Montana because her father, Bob, got a job uh, at the Michigan State University in the physics department. Carrie's mom, Jan, works as a registered nurse and volunteer for the Nordic Ski Patrol, which takes part in, quote, high country rescue missions. So her whole family's like smart and adventurous and badass. They just love to get out there. Yeah. They're not the TV couch people. No. That I'm from. Yeah. <laughs> Neither. Couch, couch stock is what mm. you and I are from. <laughs> <laughs> we're couch people. You're mountain people. We're couch people. Couch so. stock almost made me spit Diet Coke <laughs> on my own microphone. Couch stock. We're of great, great couch we're stock. Of, California. Uh, we're of couch stock. After they move to Montana, takes up Nordic skiing, and she's really good at it. Um, she continues honing her skills throughout adolescence, and right out of high school, she starts training for a biathlon, which, according to the Daily Beast article, is, quote, kind of a winter race that combines cross-country skiing and shooting targets with a small bore rifle. Hmm. So skiing and shooting. Sure. You know? Get out there. Yep. That's why she was fine with the grizzly bear. She's like, I'm bringing a rifle with me. <laughs> I don't think so, man. I think she just wanted to fucking high five a grizzly. Because <laughs> I'm sure it's like there's laws around it in that area of shooting bears, right? Whatever. Yeah, you just can't. You just can't go pick them off because it's <laughs> ruining your job, right? And because yeah. it's like, oh, it's my lunch break. Okay. When Carrie's 19-year-old, she's recruited for the first ever U.S. Women's Biathlon program, um, and she joins a, a three-person relay team. And four years later, in 1984, Carrie and her teammates compete in the first ever Women's Biathlon World Championship held in France. Wow. Um, Carrie's team wins the bronze, and Carrie herself places fifth in the individual race, breaking multiple records. Nice. Uh huh. According to Sports Illustrated, quote, it was not just the best finish for an American that year, but the best finished ever for a U.S. biathlete of either sex in 26 years of international biathlon competition. Nice. She broke that the glass biathlon ceiling. That's right. So. Clearly, as I said, she's a total badass. Um, following these milestones, Carrie, quote, emerged suddenly and dramatically as America's best female biathlete with promise of becoming a superstar in the grueling sport, unquote. With her future promising, but that biathlon season over in uh, in 1984 in July, Carrie takes a summer job as a waitress. And so uh, we're back to her lunch break from nice. said job. Okay, got it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So she goes, uh, gets off work that day, decides to go and run, chase a grizzly bear. Um, and around 3 p.m., Carrie is still running when she notices something off in the distance on the trail she's on. And there's what she sees is two sleeping bags spread out on the trail, which is odd. Mm -hmm. As she approaches them, uh, suddenly two men walk out onto the trail in front of her. They're these unshaven, like grizzly dudes wearing grimy, quote, wearing, quote, grimy, smoke reeking clothes, like from bonfires and shit. And they're carrying rifles. Mm -hmm. The older of the men tells Carrie that they just want to talk to her. Um, explaining that they don't get many women up in the mountains and Carrie is afraid of what could happen if she tells them to fuck off or whatever and runs the opposite direction. But she senses there's something not quite right about these men and she agrees to talk to them. But her instincts are right as after the three 
talk for a bit. The men tell her that they're taking her captive um, as the younger man needs a mountain wife. Ugh. A struggle ensues and the older man hits Carrie on the left side of her jaw very hard, grabs her by both wrists and throws her to the ground. Then the men overpower her and tie her up, all while threatening her with their guns and knives. Mm. All right. So who are these unshaven, grimy mountain men? Let me tell you. The older one is 53-year-old Don Nichols, and the younger one is his 18-year-old son, Dan. Dan will later tell police that his father didn't, quote, believe in the system, society, civilization. So when Dan was seven, his dad took him to the mountains uh, near Ennis. And for around two months, they lived there while Don taught his son how to live off the land. Dan said, quote, dad taught me how to cope, how to hunt, stay alive in the winter, make things pleasant. Living in the mountains is a natural way of life. In society, you go to work, get money, and buy food. In the mountains, you go get your food. You don't go through the machine of society, end quote. Uh-huh, mountain men. It's just so self-serving. Yeah. It's just so self-serving. The men in these stories are real dicks. It's not great examples. Hmm. Since then, the Nichols had spent a good part of the previous 12 summers living off the land of the Spanish Peaks Wilderness, an area set off from the rest of the Madison Range uh, area. Around five years before encountering Carrie, Don, the dad, had purchased a chain and started looking for the perfect, quote, mountain wife. For years, he dreamed of starting his own tribe in the mountains, but he knew that most women likely wouldn't want to go along with his dream, at least not willingly. Investigators later theorized that prior to the kidnapping, Dan had grown bored of the mountain lifestyle. The son, he's like 18 at this point, and wanted to leave it behind, but his dad didn't want his son to leave. So in hopes of getting his kid to stay, he decided to find that mountain wife for his son. So Don and Dan came up with a plan for kidnapping a woman. Okay, so after they take Carrie hostage, for the next 18 or so hours, the men lead Carrie through the woods deeper into the mountains. Carrie's tethered by a rope to Dan, while Don walks behind them, keeping his rifle aimed at her back. According to the Los Angeles Times, Carrie, quote, risks her captor's rage by dropping items such as her wristwatch and headband to leave a trail for search parties. Smart. Uh-huh. This chick's fucking smart. And she deliberately presses the imprint of her running shoe into the soft dirt of gopher mounds and anthills to leave mm-hmm. the trail. <laughs> wow. I That's know. really smart. I yep. know. At one point, the men stop for the night and Carrie is chained to a tree and put inside a sleeping bag. Um, and the men discuss taking her even further into the Spanish peaks, which the area they're very familiar with. Um, and Carrie's right, of course, to assume that search parties will be looking for her. So that same evening, Carrie is supposed to go back to work after her break, I think, for the dinner shift. She doesn't show up. And so her boss, Shap, the grizzly bear dude, He's worried that she was maybe attacked by that grizzly bear. 
Um, yeah. Right. So yes. he, which is like so convenient because would he have worried as much had he not talked? No, about it's that kind of perfect. Yeah. That they even had that discussion. Yeah, totally. Um, he later tells Sports Illustrated, quote, I knew Carrie couldn't get lost in that country, not with her knowledge. And even if she'd fallen and broken her leg, she was tough enough to crawl out. I mean, this was a woman who could take care of herself. So he knew something was off. He also knew that she was wearing shorts, a T-shirt and a windbreaker, which meant she was at risk for hypothermia due to the high elevation. So he contacts Carrie's parents and the county sheriff's office, and then they all form a search party. Carrie's dad, Bob, borrows a friend's plane to search for his daughter from the air. And um, meanwhile, her mom, Jan, supervises a search party on the ground. Carrie's brother, Paul, goes out with the first group and they search until just after dark. They have no idea that just over the ridgeline they're searching is Carrie. Mm. And actually, Carrie, they're kind of near her at that point and she can hear them searching for her, mm. which is so horrifying. But she doesn't call out for help because the Nichols had repeatedly threatened to shoot her if she called out to any searchers. And if anyone tried to save her, they said they'd shoot them, too. Mm. So with no sign of Carrie by the search party, they spend the night hours coming up with a strategy to find her the next morning. They pour over topographical maps and create sectors for each party to focus. In the morning, the search party is around 40 people. They head out um, and included our two friends of Carrie's, a man named Alan Goldstein, who's 36, and a man named Jim Schwalb, who's 30. The two of them head out together to a ridge near where Shap had seen the bear, like following in that direction. And they separate and they begin going downhill in separate areas through heavy timber. So just before 8 a.m., Schwalb comes across the Nichols camp. Oh. Uh-huh. Carrie, who's still chained to a tree, sees him and yells, watch out, they've got guns. Dawn tells Dan to shut her up. And so Dan turns and points his gun at Carrie and the trigger goes off. He pulls the trigger at at close range. Um, the bullet enters at a downward angle two inches below the right side of her collarbone, strikes her lung, and then exits her back 10 inches lower. Oh. Schwab approaches the campsite, um, and he later says that Dan looks like he wants to cry. He keeps repeating, I didn't mean to shoot her over and over again. Oh. Don tells his son to shut up and calm down and then points a rifle at Schwab. That's when Schwab sees his companion, Alan Goldstein. Um, he's still coming down the ridge and he's heading towards the camp. And Schwab later recalls what happens when he said, quote, I yelled, Al, call for help. Go get some help. Al had this walkie talkie with him and he said something over it. Then he pulled off his day pack and dove into it with his hands. He came out with something. I didn't even know he had brought along a gun. Oh, mm -hmm. so Goldstein runs behind a tree around 20 feet um, away. And at this point, Schwab is trying to treat Carrie's wounds. He had reached her from behind the tree. Goldstein tells the Nichols to drop their weapons. Don raises his rifle and is able to shoot Goldstein in the face. Oh, I know. Schwab runs over to his friend and finds him already dead. So he decides to run for help at this point, seeing the situation obviously is intensified. He runs a mile and a half. Uh, his muscles are aching. He finally reaches a trail. And thankfully, the sheriff and his search party are right in that spot. So for the next four hours, the search party tries to find the Nichols camp again. 
but it's a slow process and they know that the nickels are armed and clearly fine with shooting yeah so they walk slowly with point men in the front rifles ready to fire they don't find the camp and so then they take schwab up in a helicopter so and i'm sure he's traumatized at this point seeing two of his friends shot and they spot goldstein's red day pack and authorities are able to pinpoint the area and swoop in and meanwhile back before this when schwab had taken off the nichols had realized that the jig is up and they'd been located they need to get the fuck out of there so they start packing their belongings carrie is still alive and she realizes what's happening and she asks the nickels who are clearly going to leave her behind to die if they could leave her a sleeping bag so she doesn't freeze to death but instead they just dump her out of the sleeping bag she was in <sighs> untie her and fucking take off wow so they leave her alive, but Carrie is barely able to move due to her injuries. And she knows it could be a long time before anyone finds her. And she knows she'll either die from blood loss or hypothermia if she doesn't do something quickly. So she starts going into shock and she then removes a sleeping bag from the backpack that Schwab had left behind, mm. crawls into it stay, to stay warm, and then attempts to eat a chocolate bar from the pack of his backpack for energy, but she's too nauseous. So she just drinks from a canteen of lemonade to stay hydrated. But she's losing too much blood and she knows that if she panics, her heart will race faster, leading to more blood loss. Mm-hmm. So she knows she has to put her biathlon training to work. According to Sports Illustrated, quote, the most crucial point in a biathlon race is when the athlete makes the transition from cross-country skiing to shooting on the rifle range. So basically, the skiing portion of the race, cross-country, makes your heart and lungs go super fast. It's really, really strenuous. And then you have to jump right from there into shooting a rifle, you know, I'm sure very accurately. And so that requires a steady heart and a control of your breathing. So it's part of it is that it's these two extremes that biathletes train to control their pulse and breathing rates almost at will. Oh, wow. I know. Carrie maintains this quote, yoga like discipline for four hours as the search parties try to find her. Mm. When rescuers reach her, she's still conscious, calm and in control, but her vision is blurring quickly. A helicopter transports her to a hospital 40 miles away where she undergoes surgery and spends days in the ICU. Eight days later, she's released from the hospital. Oh, <laughs> you're set me up. <laughs> That's why I didn't want to give you that much information. Because I was just like, there's just no way she's done it perfectly. I like know. she's handled this so perfectly. Yeah. There's, she wouldn't die at this point. That's why I didn't want to tell you it was a survivor story. So I wanted to be like, mine's a survivor story too. But like, Georgia, shut up. No, but you're right. That's like sh getting shot in a lung. I mean, and like, it went through her. I feel like those are always fatal. I mean, I don't, who knows, but, but the idea like that you would have to be doing you, it's not just like a flesh wound. Right. I mean, oh God. It impairs your breathing and you're panicking and it's like, she fucking... She was the Zen master. Yeah, she was. So meanwhile, multiple law enforcement agencies launch a manhunt to find these two men responsible for Carrie's abduction and attempted murder and the cold-blooded murder of Alan Goldstein, who's just 36 years old. 
After figuring out the assailants' names, authorities work to learn everything they can about them. Um, and knowing that they frequent the Spanish peaks, they search the area every day. Later, uh, after not finding them for a while, the searches move to weekends only. It seems like they it's such a huge area that it's like impossible to find just two people who know what they're doing in the wilderness. You know? Right. Yeah. But finally, on December 13th, 1984, five months after Carrie's kidnapping, the Nichols are caught. Basically, this man named Roland Moore, he is out riding on his property and he sees smoke rising off in the distance, he uses binoculars, sees that uh, it's two men. He obviously knows what's going on and knows about the manhunt. He calls his brother, who happens to be the Madison County Sheriff, Johnny France, <laughs> and knows nice. the ranch like the back of his hand. So he tracks the nickels for two hours and finally locates them around 90 miles from where Carrie was kidnapped. God. I know. They really made, like, put some distance between them. 90 miles. 90 miles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Finally, how great would it have been, though, if they gotten killed by the grizzly bear, though? <sighs> how satisfying. That, it, that came in and was like, I will see yeah. revenge. Nope. But yep. no, instead, Sheriff France is our grizzly bear. And uh, there's a little back and forth between the men, but he's able to arrest them without incident. They're charged with murder, kidnapping, and assault. Mm. So Don and Dan Nichols are tried separately in May 1985. Dan, the son, um, he's considered to be more of an accomplice and is convicted of kidnapping and misdemeanor assault. But the jury feels like he had been brainwashed by his father. So he's not found guilty of murder. Yeah. He also claims that shooting Carrie was an accident that the gun had unexpectedly gone off. But according to Carrie, he had looked directly at in her eyes before shooting her um well if anybody knows whether or not that was an accident it yeah. would be the person who got shot definitely and also their he's an experienced gun person yeah so you don't act, i feel like accidentally firing isn't something that happens you don't put your finger on a trigger if you don't plan on shooting someone but but also it's an interesting thing to think about where you're being raised by this by basically a doomsday prepper right who has moved you into the woods slowly but surely over the years through your adolescence yeah the one person in your life that's an adult that you're supposed to follow is essentially not all right yeah. in any way and is is crafting this world around you that you have to believe in right because he's all you have so it could have been that thing where like he thought yeah i get my wife and this is the right way yeah. and that's how those things always work until it could have not been that it was an accident that it went off but that once he actually did it he went what in the fuck am i doing and what is this right right i mean I don't know. Yeah, it's he just definitely so, had had to have yeah. some brainwashing going on and, and was not in his right mind. Yeah. So he sentenced to just 10 years in prison. Then in September 1985, Don is convicted of kidnapping, aggravated felony assault, and deliberate homicide, and he's sentenced to 85 years. Yeah. Meanwhile, Carrie remains a badass and thrives according to sports illustrated the bullet left nerve damage and some scar tissue um quote raising concerns about her ability to resume her athletic career at least on the level she'd reached before the shooting but within three months of the attack she's able to start training for the biathlon again however on a limited basis 
Three days after the arrest of her attackers, Carrie competes at the U.S. Biathlon Association's <laughs> pre-trial race in Big Sky, Montana. What? I know. She later recalls, quote, we didn't do that well, but it was great to be back. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. It's a miracle that she's back. That's amazing. Three days after her attackers were caught, which means five months after this ordeal. <sighs> I know. Carrie. Man, we, we all... We need to be like Carrie. What would Carrie do? <laughs> Get out of bed earlier and run six miles. Uh, yeah. A few weeks after that happens, she competes for the U.S. national biathlon team and places third. Whoa. Oh my <laughs> God. Shot in the lung. She was shot in the lung. <laughs> now she's now she's really like um she's got. I mean, you know, obviously before yeah. her focus is one thing, but now it's like that idea she's coming up from under. She is the, you know, she's been, she's been quote unquote sidelined and yeah. quote unquote traumatized and whatever. But then her whole thing is like, nope, I'm, that's, yeah. I'm going to go do the thing that I'm meant to do. You can't stop me. Uh, mm -hmm. It is hard for her. She later describes the pain she faces. Quote, when I breathe deeply, there's like a band of pain about four inches wide around my thorax. Um, and she can't ski for more than 45 minutes, which is a lot shorter than she used to be able to do it for two hours nonstop. Um, Nothing helps her pain, but she keeps training anyway. And for years to come, Carrie undergoes biofeedback and physical therapy to help control the pain caused by the nerve damage to her back and chest. Mm. She has shrapnel in her chest and she wears a metal band around her front teeth to correct a jaw problem she suffered when Dawn first hit her. God. I know. And she often sees a psychologist to help with her PTSD um, as the only way she can handle the trauma she endured is by pretending it didn't happen, which yeah. we all know is a great way to have it come back and manifest in other ways. Yeah, you can do that. You can only do that for so long. Yeah. And then you go deal with it. Like it totally works for a while. And sometimes sure. that's what you need. But yeah, it's not the it's not a it's not a solution. Well, and for someone like her that clearly has no problem facing uh, humongous and threatening challenges, yeah, you know, it's like, yeah, therapy. Yeah, you can you can fucking you can stare down that mountain and then yeah, hell yeah, climb it and meet a grizzly bear on it. Yeah, you can do all those things. This is Montana. <laughs> you can do it all. Kidnapping. Okay. In 1986, two years after her kidnapping, Carrie competes at the World Biathlon Championships in fucking Norway. She places fourth. And then, I know. And then she announces her retirement. She has multiple reasons for retiring. One being that her injuries from the kidnapping, of course, still cause her a lot of pain. But the other is that she's enrolled in Colorado State University Veterinary School. And she, she's like, oh. <laughs> moving on with my life. <laughs> <laughs> she's like i don't i don't know if i'm gonna be a world-class athlete anymore i think i'm just gonna be a world-class veterinarian i did it i'm moving on so now i'm going to tackle true grizzly bears that's right throughout the trial the nickels and after she is trying to get back to living her badass life but she has to deal with the media who according to the daily beast article has romanticized what they call the quote nickels boys as quote survivalists so suddenly mm. these fucking doomsday dudes are being put on this like 
like heroic pedestal. For example, Esquire paints them as, quote, some rowdy mountain men trying to snag a wife. Oh, uh-huh. And one media outlet victim blames Carrie by describing her as being, quote, a proper belle of Bozeman, which is the location, the perfect flower of the New West, as if the Nichols were trying to take her on a fun fucking romp through the yeah. wilderness. But she she was too prim and proper to appreciate it, basically. Wow. So like they're totally romanticizing these kidnappers and and these, gri- these grimy weirdos that yeah. were like couldn't handle regular life right and so they were like we have to be in the woods and you have yeah. to be here with us where it's like hey look if you have to be in the woods and you do- need to issue society Goodbye. God bless, that's your american right yeah but you don't get to take other people with you and you're not uh you're not somehow cool because yeah. of it yeah you shit that's in the hole and then cover it up and like you're not special and many locals of the area agree with the media, and they feel like the Nichols are some of the last men out there truly living free, away from the controlling government. Some <laughs> locals even lined up at the trials, I know, to get autographs from the, quote, mountain men. Well, you know what? That's that's just like women falling in love with Richard Ramirez. Right. There are people that take... Uh, they take their what is what's the phrase everybody loves to use these days parasocial their parasocial relationships that they're projecting onto these mm. people of like yeah that's a real man and it's like it's just not yeah it's just not yeah and it's just i mean yeah to have to read about for carrie to have to read about this and the media is like trying to track her down she they, the family and her are like absolutely not interested well and also sorry but if the media had actually wanted to romanticize or blow up anybody in that story aside from carrie how about the two dudes yeah. that ran into that camp yeah and like and one lost his life for the bravery and totally. the strength of going in and trying to help and be there like that's it's they're right there yeah like they're Heroes. right there in the story that you could you could focus on and instead it's the actual murderers it's I know. the insane it's them and her who fought for her fucking life like they yeah. deserve all the accolades in 1989, Carrie's mother publishes a book called Victims, the Carrie Swenson story. According to Los Angeles Times, quote, the book, which was dedicated to Alan Goldstein, was written because Carrie and her family are haunted by more than the memory of her ordeal. They feel that Carrie was the victim not only of a crime, but a, of a bizarre myth-making process that turned the criminals into folk heroes. Sorry, what? It, and that happened in what year? 1986. Four is when the kidnapping happened. And then the media, like the resulting media was basically mid 80s. I mean, that makes perfect sense. That is like, yes, that's like the most unanalyzed, uh, uh, like dudes in charge era, like before anyone even thought about it. I bet you there wasn't one woman in that newsroom (laughs) to go, excuse me, what are you doing? You're calling her a damsel in distress or whatever. It's like, no, no, no. Not at all. In 1991, Dan Nichols, the son, is paroled after serving only six years of his sentence. And then in 2017, Don, now 86 years old, is uh, and having been up for parole four times, is released, having served less than half of his sentence. Carrie later writes an op-ed for the Montana Pioneer that reads in part, Quote, we, the victims, have a life sentence, not Don Nichols. They invoked a death sentence on Alan Goldstein. 
that is the ultimate sentence. The life sentence for me is that every day of my life, I have to deal with the death of a friend, the memories and horrors of being kidnapped, being chained up like an animal, being shot in the chest and then left to die. That day, I lost my freedom and my athletic career. They took away my rights to live freely without fear. Victims of violent crimes are victimized over and over again by the justice system and the media. Mm -hmm. Despite her struggles, traumas, and injuries, Carrie followed her dream of becoming a veterinarian. Today, she continues to work in the field, focusing on small animal medicine. In her spare time, she spends time in the outdoors with her family, friends, dogs, and horses. And in fact, Karen, in 1986, Alan Goldstein and Jim Schwalb were honored by the Carnegie Hero Fund, which recognizes persons who perform extraordinary acts of heroism in civilian life. Wow. Yeah. So that's good. Outdoors, dogs and horses. She's still involved in biathlon by coaching and mentoring young athletes. And in 2015, Carrie and her 1984 biathlon teammates were inducted into the U.S. Biathlon Hall of Fame. Whoa. And that is the story of the kidnapping of the badass Carrie Swenson. Wow. Had you ever heard that? I didn't hear that until I was doing research on more stories. It sounded familiar, but there are several. Yeah. I survived episodes with people and a lot, a lot of times in the Appalachian mountains mm -hmm. with people coming upon a grimy, weird guy that's clearly been out there for way too long and, yeah. and having horrible experiences. So I couldn't figure out, yeah. I was like, do I know this or not? Maybe and I don't was. think I did. I don't know if there was an I survived. I don't want to know because then I'm like, oh, fuck, I should have watched that. No, no, no. I think it just reminded me okay. of other ones I've seen okay. where like a woman but is taken by a single guy. The fact right. that it was a father son, I feel like I would have remembered. Yeah. Cause that's just so twisted and weird and Dark. like such a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Jesus, she, wow. She's a fucking badass. Yeah, she is. That was amazing. Totally. Great story. Thank you. And a survivor story. Yeah. Which is great. Oh, we have an announcement. Oh, yeah. So this week, well, I think we talked about this a little bit last week, but there's so much going on in the world. There's so much uh, that's stressful and scary. But one of the things that I think that's really upsetting lately are these laws being passed against transgender youth against transgender treatment, against transgender, like families seeking care for their transgender children. Mm -hmm. And it's really upsetting and it's really odd. It just doesn't really make a ton of sense why it's just a really extreme, yeah. scary thing that people need to really start paying attention to. And, yeah. and I've read a bunch of stuff about it. And one of the things someone Someone sent me an article on Twitter, and it's basically saying this is how the Nazis started. Right. The Nazis started basically attack and discriminate and pass laws against people that everybody else, quote unquote, would think, well, that's fine with for them. Right. That's that kind of othering thing where it's not a big deal if it's happening to them because that's not my life and that's not my family. Right. It doesn't affect me. And I, so and I'm also scared of this, you know, this other anyway. So I'm not even going to pay attention to it. 
or I feel the need because I think that I'm a faith-based person that right. I'm going to judge these other people or that I somehow have the right to 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 make up stories about people I don't even know. Right. And the truth of it is that whether or not someone is trans is that person's business. Right. It's that person's life. And nobody outside of that person can tell them or can judge anything about them. Yeah. It's a ridiculous idea to st sit outside and pretend that you can decide right. how another person should live their life that way. And this is, it's one thing to talk about it, you know, at work or when you're at a bar and be a bigot. But the idea that there are passing laws in Texas, in Idaho, in all these places that are really extremist, they're really like, crazy right wing and mm -hmm. they're really dangerous it's inhumane it's fucking inhumane the way they want to treat people that aren't like them it's also based in ignorance there's just yeah. so much ignorance around it that they're trying to they're the story that's being told is one based in ignorance yeah. so all that is to say we're going to donate ten thousand dollars to the national center for transgender equality this is an organization that advocates to change policies and society to increase understanding and acceptance of transgender people. So in the nation's capital and throughout the country, NCTE works to replace disrespect, discrimination, and violence with empathy, opportunity, and justice. And this is a very big organization. And so they actually asked us if there was anything specifically that we wanted our money to be put toward. And we said that fighting these transgender laws that seem to be popping up and being passed, you know, like with nobody knowing about yeah. them. So if you want to donate to the National Center for Transgender Equality, look them up at transequality.org. Yep. Trans rights are human rights, as as we always have said. As you well know, but it feels like other people need to start uh, learning too, because it's so extreme. Yeah. It's just really it's, insanity. It's not the world we want to live in. And I'm horrified that the country we live in is fucking making these decisions that have so many huge consequences for so many families and so many people. And we're horrified yeah. by it. So... Um, um, yeah, give two yeah. if you can. Yeah. And, you know, just fight the good fight. And... Mm -hmm. Keep that love in your heart. That's right. We appreciate you guys listening. Thank you so much. Don't forget to buy your Brock's taco truck jelly beans. <laughs> this is not a paid advertisement. No. This is a sincere, a sincere endorsement of taco truck uh, jelly beans. Yeah, jelly beans. They yeah. were jelly beans. <laughs> oh, also stay sexy. And don't get murdered. Goodbye. Goodbye. Elvis, do you want a cookie? This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Hannah Kyle Crichton. Our producer is Alejandra Keck. This episode was engineered and mixed by Stephen Ray Morris. Our researchers are Jay Elias and Haley Gray. Email your hometowns and fucking hoorays to myfavoritemurder at gmail.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at myfavoritemurder and Twitter at myfavemurder. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Goodbye. Goodbye.